Welcome back to that epic podcast. This is episode four, Mesopotamian Women. I am back and on schedule this time, which is a great thing to happen. Um, this episode will cover a topic that really should have a huge wealth of research around it, but does not. This is, of course, what the Epic of Gilgamesh can tell us about coming-of-age trials for men, but most importantly, the role of women in Akkadian Age Mesopotamia, the period in which uh, the two main tablets of our epic were written. Whilst this lack of studies may seem problematic at first, it does allow me to flesh out my analyses more easily and helps me assess the worth of existing scholarship, which, mind you, does not really concern the Epic of Gilgamesh, but rather relies on archaeological evidence. However, this should not deter us from using literary evidence, such as our current Epic, to evaluate what roles gender played in Mesopotamia. I really want to take the time in this episode to show how a casual reader, as opposed to an academic, might interpret feminine roles in the Gilgamesh epic, controversially as the objectification of women, and additionally contrast this interpretation to the manner in which these roles should be considered academically. Obviously, one must take into account that this is an entirely different period in history, and our analyses should not be clouded by modern social norms. By embracing these tendencies, as it were, to jump to the conclusion that women were simply objects of men, serving a less significant societal role, we are left with a fictitious and incomplete picture of the late 3rd century BC Mesopotamia. So, we must ignore these tendencies. But we should also understand them in order to right the wrong. There are two primary examples which I will be assessing in this episode. The first relates to the whole getting a prostitute from Gilgamesh to sleep with Inkedu uh, situation in book one. You remember that, right? It's an interesting story, but also very complex, especially considering the information that it lends to us regarding both the role of women in masculine rites of passage and women rights in general. The second relates to the function of the goddess Ninsun, the mother of Gilgamesh, who effectively embodies the political significance of women in Mesopotamia. In addition to this second example, I will also consider a fleeting moment after the Bull of Heaven's death, where Ishtar brings together the women of Uruk. This, whilst brief in description, exemplifies how feminine occupations spanned across all socio-economic classes. Okay then, let's turn off those analytical minds of ours and consider some moments which may trigger the thought that the Epic of Gilgamesh objectifies women. The coming of Inkedu is of course the most guilty, if we could say that, of doing this. As you may recall, the book revolves around the taming of Inkedu, and in order to do this, a trapper desires to use a prostitute, whose name is actually Shamhat, though it is not written in this copy. Uh, 
in order to remind Enkedu that he is a man and not an animal. But who makes this woman anyone's to give? The trapper certainly has no right to take the harlot for the purpose of ridding himself of this man-beast. Ah, but Gilgamesh does. He is the king after all, dominant in war and unchallenged in life. So much so that the epic tells us that he had the right to sleep with wives before their husbands were able to. It surely tells us a lot about the power of the king, right? Well, funnily enough, this is the only evidence we have of this ever happening in Mesopotamia. So did the contemporary king just want to put this in here to establish that he had the power to go around and sleep with people's wives? <laughs> That'd be pretty typical. Throughout much of this story, two lines were particularly striking. These were concerning the idea of women's art and women's power to overpower a man, most definitely through sex. This might suggest to the casual reader that Mesopotamian women serve the sole function of sexual partners, and were otherwise useless in a cultural and societal context. We must not jump to this conclusion. Whilst the most important role of Mesopotamian women might have been... Uh, to bear children and act as mothers to society, sex was not their only function. It is also important to highlight that this harlot is no an ordinary woman. She was not picked off the street to lure Inkedu to his fate of being human. She is a prostitute, and not just any prostitute, a prostitute belonging to the so-called Temple of Love. It is evident that she was chosen as she possessed a particular set of skills, shall we say. But this temple of love also implies that she played a more spiritual role in society than one might have initially presumed. The sexualization of female nudity might also be seen as evidence of the Gilgamesh epic objectifying women, especially when the trapper states that the harlot should make her breasts bare or have no shame. It might be a problem which arises only in the English translation, but the sense of shame is clearly associated with this nudity. And this concept is not only confined to the West, where it dominates gender discussions even today. It is also seen throughout history in the East, especially in China. Though, there is no real agreement on whether women were indeed shamed to expose themselves some historians believe that Mesopotamians did not embrace this idea as the later Christians and Muslims did, whilst arguing that this did not mean they were sexually liberated. The other school of thought argues that perceptions of nakedness change around the time, funnily enough, in which this epic poem was produced. As you can probably already tell, there are many things to consider when analysing the complexity of gender's function within the Epic of Gilgamesh and Mesopotamian society by extension. And one cannot draw from their own contemporary cultural and ideological background in order to paint a clear picture. So then, we are now going to turn to the real analysis, beginning with the story of Shamat and Inkedu. Interestingly, by perceiving this interaction very basically, as what is essentially a woman sleeping with a man, there is something very peculiar that stands out, and it reflects an intricate power 
or responsibility, I suppose, that women held in ancient Mesopotamia. When Shamhat sleeps with Enkedu for six days, etc., etc., we see that she passes to him a sense of being a man, in a way. It is through her agency that Enkedu becomes a man. Obviously, Gilgamesh and the Trapper both know that this is what will happen, and are confident in the outcome of the situation. But what does it tell us about both the function of Sumerian women generally and their role in the rites of passage for men? Ultimately, quite a lot. In fact, from this, we can make the very basic assumption that virginity, as a social construct, held a great significance in Mesopotamia, as by losing his virginity, and perhaps even taking the harlot's virginity, though it does not seem likely considering her occupation, Inkedu undergoes a pivotal transition from naive and animalistic into a wise man. After the couple complete the passage of manhood, if you will, Shamhat addresses Inkedu, declaring that through their experience, concerning sex of course, he has not only become wise, but has also become godlike. It is an interesting revelation, but it does not fully indicate that Inkedu has completed his transformation into a man. Inkedu is in fact not referred to as a man until he has eaten bread, drunk wine, and hunted lions. Are these, these things part of a greater Mesopotamian ritual related to manhood? Perhaps. The latter trials of Inkedu are certainly not so far-fetched if one considers the later infamous Agoyi training which Spartan youths endured. Anyway, returning to the topic of virginity and sexual experience in Sumer and Mesopotamia as a whole, women evidently play a significant role in making a man, both metaphorically and physically, as it were. And it draws my mind to the Mesopotamian goddess of creation, Aruru, who shaped Inkedu with her own hands. It cannot be mere coincidence that the deity of creation just so happens to emblematize a mother. Anyway, moving back to the example of Inkedu and Shamhat, John Bailey when looking at the sexual interaction between the harlot and Inkadu, suggests that this particular example implies the significance of sex in Mesopotamian religion as well, especially when it is assessed in tandem with fertility rituals, which were widespread throughout Mesopotamian history. Considering Bailey's suggestion, if we were to assess the aforementioned right of Gilgamesh to sleep with wives before their husbands could, which, as discussed, is highly suspect as a historical fact. I wonder if, and this is merely hypothetical, so please don't quote me on this, I wonder if this is why Gilgamesh possessed this power. If the Mesopotamians considered their rulers to be semi-divine at least, which the Sumerian king list makes clear, then this rite could be part of a fertility ritual, because of the king's semi-divine nature, the mere sexual presence of the king could be seen as enough to ensure a wife's fertility. As I said though, mere speculation. 
Another interesting conclusion that we could draw from this interaction between Shamhat and Inkeru relates to the reasonably free, I'm using air quotes here, legal status of women. Indeed, when the harlot lays with the bestial Inkeru, she is implicitly reflecting a right to pass her own free status onto Inkeru. Bear with me here. It seems as though this indicates that the status of women in Sumer was not fixed at birth, and considering the fact that there is evidence which suggests women could inherit a mater familias status, that is, the matron of the household, through the death of their husband or being an only daughter, women had the ability to pass their status on to their future partners. This is essentially what is seen here. Shamhat, presumably retaining a high status as a, a priestess of love, I suppose you could call her, passes her status on to Inkeru through deciding that he should be her partner. This is quite unique for a third millennium civilization. To add to the exceptionality of this inference, Julia Asher Grieve even argues that women, regardless of their status, could even transfer social, political, and economic standing onto a slave partner. This is truly fascinating. Let us now move on to the example of Ninsun, the goddess mother of Gilgamesh. Despite her divine status within the text, we should, as we are considering her as an exemplification of mortal female roles, analyze the example as if she herself was immortal. Obviously, gods are not likely to come down to earth and fulfill the role as a spiritual guide in real life. But one must also be cautious about generalizing too much. The mere fact that we see a goddess, and a powerful one at that, Assuming the role of sage within the text suggests that her position was not available for any woman to fill. It is entirely likely that, as with most civilizations, the role of priestess or sage, especially one so close to the king, was an incredibly exclusive position and not at all open to common women, and certainly not slaves. However, this leads me to an important point about women in the religio-political sphere. This was not male-dominated, at least not to the extent which we as 21st century readers would imagine a third millennium civilization to be. In fact, art after the Uruk period, depicting images of rituals and cult practices, usually makes little distinction between males and females. A representation reiterated in the Epic of Gilgamesh, wherein Gilgamesh is also described as feminine in terms of his beauty. An interesting quality to consider for such a, a macho hero. Maybe these guys just like looking like one another, I don't know, to annoy the crap out of modern historians, to confuse them. But, mm, I feel like it goes deeper than that. Let me elaborate on this using my own knowledge of Greco-Roman art. Sometimes in pottery or other forms of art, the Greeks and Romans portrayed figures in such a way that you could distinguish them from one another, whether in terms of gender or status. For instance, this is probably the most well-known thing about representation in art, 
the gods were mostly presented on a larger scale than the mortals. In Mesopotamian art from this period, though, as we said, we don't see this at all, which is strange considering the patriarchal hierarchy which evidently existed. This could indicate that these cultural, ritualistic, cultic practices did not discriminate against gender and welcomed all who embraced the burden of service. We can probably assume that some rituals, ritual practices were confined to the female gender, especially if it was a requirement for service to their patron deity. For instance, though the epic does not necessarily explain to whom the Temple of Love is dedicated, I would presume it's, it's Ishtar, as she is the goddess of war and sexual love. Prostitution was evidently a womanly occupation, and so being a priestess there, if we are even to believe that this is a legitimate temple, was likely a position reserved for the female gender. Harriet Crawford has asserted that Mesopotamian women have been understudied in the modern era, likely due to the fact that many archaeologists and scholars have been hindered in their analyses by their own cultural and ideological backgrounds. These same scholars generally assumed that women were marginalised within Mesopotamian civilization, But as is evident through the example of Ninsun, this is simply not the case. Ninsun is notably the main advisor to Gilgamesh in his kingship, emphasising the significant role that women may have played in advising kings in their day-to-day -day affairs. But her role as communicator with the immortals, though she herself is one, and advisor to the king is so very significant. This is really the highest honour in such a society, but also one that comes with considerable responsibilities, naturally. And it's significant because it's entrusted to a woman. Sure, Ninsen herself may be of high status, the highest even, but this should not deter us from acknowledging the noteworthiness of the situation. It shows that Mesopotamians evidently perceived value in placing such considerable burdens on the shoulders of a woman, and her position was essential to the maintenance of a functioning society. Narrative, in many ways, formulates the social construct of gender. But in the Epic of Gilgamesh, we do not see a text telling women that they should not pursue a career in the religio-political sphere. No, no, no. We see a text telling women that they have very important roles to play in the upkeep of Mesopotamian society as a whole. Crucial and indispensable positions which seek to maintain favourable relations with the gods and provide ki the king with valuable insight into many significant affairs. Hell, even the passage where Ishtar calls together all who serve her in order to mourn the ball of heaven lends much to our understanding of how women participated in Mesopotamian society. By calling together her people, the dancing and singing girls, the prostitutes of the temple, the courtesans, the author is representing only a small but important fraction of the roles which women could assume. These prostitutes, that is me generalising, would have had 
a considerable effect on the patriarchy. From the text alone, we know how close these women were to the king and other officials, especially with Inkeru and Shamhat, where we see a permanent relationship between a prostitute and a client. Like Aspasia and Pericles in classical Athens, it is entirely possible that these courtesans also knew how to advise and sway leaders of ancient Mesopotamia. But there is still so much we don't know about. And so, I will leave it there. That was a good discussion. As has been shown, the Epic of Gilgamesh is an incredible source for evaluating the role of women in Mesopotamia contemporary to the Epic's writer, or writers. It is highlighted that one should not be so quick as to state that women were downtrodden during this time, as the Epic depicts females having significant legal rights, not at all discriminated against in the public spheres, at least in regard to religion, and has captured their overall importance to society. Next episode, we shall continue our assessment of the Epic of Gilgamesh's worth by looking at its correlation with the Old Testament, with specific regard to the Flood story. I'm sure that this will be an equally interesting episode, and I look forward to speaking to you all then. Just to add on to the end, uh, when I look through uh, and, and make my analyses, I'm always backing it up with evidence that I found in the sources, um, which I reference on my Instagram page. Uh, but when I state a hypothetical assumption, uh, that is most definitely one that I haven't been able to back up. So when I say don't quote me on that, don't quote me on that. <laughs> The other stuff you can. Um, the other stuff I do my best to find uh, evidence uh, to prove that it's true. So, with that being said, in the meantime, as always, stay epic. <laughs>